Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Build Amazing Things Securely. I'm Laura Valmain, your host, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We've got the CEO of Castle Point with us, Rachel Greaves, and she is a specialist in an area that not many of us actually get to think about. Um, but I'm going to let her introduce that because I think, you know, otherwise I'll spoil the surprise. But before we begin, as we always do, firstly, Rachel, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here. Awesome. Now, we're really lucky to have Rachel today because normally she's hanging out in the UK, which means it's really awful times of day to record things. But for reasons, she happens to be in Australia right now. So we are making the most of it. So, Rachel, as we have you here, who are you as a human? Mm, well, um, we've got my name, which is Rachel Grease, which is a good start. Um, and that's number one, how we categorise people and who they are on the electoral roll. Uh, I am Australian, even though I do live in the UK most of the time, and I am the CEO of Castle Point Systems, which is a company um, that I am co-founder of with my husband, actually. Um, uh, in terms of um, background, um, obviously raised in Australia but lived in the UK quite a bit as a kid, and I'm back there now with my own kids, um, and uh, went to university, studied classics, so Latin, nice. <laughs> ancient Greek, ancient history, um, and anthropology. Got a degree in anthropology, and ended up in IT uh, in a you know reasonably roundabout way, as we do. Um, in terms of uh, credentials, um, since that degree and during my career, I've become a certified auditor, so I'm a CISA and a security manager. I'm a CISM. Um, and I'm certified in privacy and I'm a certified records manager, which I think is probably what you're alluding to with the topic that we don't usually talk about, but I think we should talk about more. Absolutely. Now, I'm absolutely delighted that you did classics at university. I think one of the things we're learning with all our guests is that it really is no cookie cutter pattern to what makes you good at what you do. Um, you know, education is a starting point, but it's not the uh, the final destination. And plus, also, classics is pretty cool. Um, so tell us, wh what is a records keeper, Rachel? What What is even, like, do you have, a, a, a like, a sword? Is it that kind of thing? Well, yeah. I mean, records managers are a very diverse group um, of people, which obviously includes me as one um, with my security background, but also includes other people with lots of transferable skills from other domains as well. And records managers have had more and less importance over time, culturally and from a regulatory point of view. But I mean, records managers are having a bit of a moment. It could be records managers that send Donald Trump to prison in the US. So um, the, the importance of records management from an anthropological perspective uh, seems to fluctuate over time with other cultural factors as well. But at the moment, we're quite important uh, to social fabric and to um, preserving history, um, particularly in the face of changes in technology like AI, which really um, are a kind of a new risk to our culture and our cultural identity. Awesome. Um, now, I'd, I'd love to kind of give a bit of exposure to what you're doing in this space, because you're more than just an auditor, right, Rachel? You're a founder or co-founder with your husband. Mm. Um, so what is Castle Point and what are you doing? Yeah, well, you know, from the from the audit background, what we started doing back in about 2012 when we founded our company was um, auditing information governance compliance. So I'm the kind of above the line auditor of the family and of the company. 
I'm the specialist in policy and regulation and knowing what all the rules are in terms of how we have to protect information, preserve it and destroy it when it reaches its retention period. Um, and Gavin, my husband and my co-founder, is the sort of below-the-line auditor, you know, a really experienced architect. So we would be engaged by uh, mostly um, federal government, uh, predominantly the Department of Defence in Australia, but lots of other agencies as well, to really look into why these um, initiatives for information governance were failing, um, and sometimes very expensively, you know, uh, and very consistently and predictably and repeatably <laughs> failing. Um, and what became pretty clear was that despite best intentions and honestly, whatever kind of conspiracy theory you uh, want to believe in, um, government conspiracy to do the wrong thing shouldn't be one of them because I can, I can attest as an auditor that almost everybody there is trying to do the right thing. Um, despite that, you know, real intention to do the right thing and follow the rules and protect and preserve information, everyone was failing really for the same reasons and there was no way for them to succeed. So it became pretty clear that we needed to come up with a way to succeed. We had to come up with a new kind of technology and not just kind of a, a new, you know, a new tin to put the same tech in, but a completely new category of, yeah. of information governance technology, which is what we designed. So Castle Point's what's known as a kind of a category defining tech. Um, it's, a, it's an artificial intelligence capability that does exactly what a human would do if a human had time to read every word in every document, email, database, chat message, web page, ticket in the whole enterprise on-prem and cloud and, and work out not just what it is and where it is, but what it's about. When we know what it's about, we know how to classify it and therefore we know how to treat it. So what our product really is, is auto classification capability. I, like, I, you know, I'm a bit of a data nerd, but this is, you know, it's mind blowing, really, when you think about the scale of what you're doing here, Rachel. So, you know, I've done large government organisation in the UK. Um, I've done smaller organisations. I've done big multinationals. And when any of us try and think about how much data, how much in terms of documents uh, and interactions we're having, I, I don't think any of us can really appreciate the scale. Mm. Uh, of what that is. Yeah. So how many documents or, or uh, you know, I'm going to get the terminology wrong. You correct me, Rachel. But how many items are we processing for an average organization using Castlepoint? Well, I mean, hundreds of millions and billions. And and the problem we have with that as humans is that, of course, number one, we can't possibly know what all that is. Like it's such a high volume, but it's also a huge variety of information and no one person can understand all of it and it's enormous velocity like it's constant constant change and just to give you a little bit of a sense of it i mean we did a little bit of a calculation recently for you know for a particular purpose and um what we found is that across our client base and we've been you know we've been providing this um capability for about five years now and it's it's pretty broadly used across government and um corporates but when you benchmark across all of those about 15% of what people manage is Word documents and PDFs, mm. only 15%. But yeah. in that 15%, there are billions and billions and billions of words in that content yeah. in the environment. And humans aren't really good at understanding exponentials. Like it's very hard to conceive of a billion, yeah. um, which makes it hard sometimes to get across really what this scale means. But if you think about that, that's up to today. Um, when 
people are creating documents, emails constantly, constantly. Like most of the intellectual property we have and most of the assets we have are digital in an organisation. Mm. They're, they're people's effort to come up with ideas and write them down. Um, when we start to introduce generative AI, which we're now seeing, a document that would have taken an individual hours or days or weeks to write can be produced in seconds or minutes. So we're about to see the, the volume um, increase to another exponential that we've never had to deal with before, just simply because of how fast it's going to be to create that content. You know, we, we're taking off the limiters of how fast people can type um, and really blowing a hole in the whole idea. This is awesome. This is blowing my mind a little bit because I don't think I'd really thought about generative generative AI in that way. You know, I you know, I, there's a lot of conversations. We're all listening and watching them uh, about you know, well, intellectual property and this, that, and the other. But nobody's talking about the sheer scale and volume of noise of documents of of, yeah. of things that are going to come out of this. Yeah. That's 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 incredible. Now, I, I'm interested in, in your experience, Rachel, because. You know, we've known each other a couple of years and, you know, a couple of years ago, generative AI was not a, a widely known mm -hmm. thing, but you were already there. So you've already kind of crossed over some of the kind of the territory with putting AI into systems. And not only are you using AI, but you're using it over hundreds of millions of documents in very sensitive environments. Yeah. What have you learned on the way about, you know, putting AI into those environments and for those purposes? Yeah, there's, there's um, maybe three main things that you learn. The first thing you learn is the, the actual material harm that is possible when you manage information incorrectly, which we can come back to. And the mm. second thing you learn is the scale. No one concedes, no one believes that they have this much sensitive information or this much high-value information in their environment. But, you know, just over the, the government clients, um, that we have, we've found something like a quarter of a billion individual instances of sensitive personal information in those environments. And there's no way those organisations would have thought that they had that much stuff. There is so much dark data. And we all know dark data is a concept, but you just can't conceive of the scope and the scale of it until mm. you actually start evidencing it, you start quantifying it. Um, and the third thing that, that we've learned and we've seen in practice is how important explainability is, how important ethical AI is and is going to be. They're really the three main things that everyone now has to grapple with when we're talking about AI uh, for information classification. I, I really, let's come back to two of these. Um, I'm going to come back to the the ethical side and the you know explainability. But first, you talked about harm. Um, and I don't think many of us have a model mentally of how harm would really work. Um, I know we've we've seen data breaches before, but we haven't seen, you know, really how could this hurt a person? Have you got some stories you could share? Yeah, so many. Um, and a lot of the audits that I did um, aren't public domain, um, so I can't talk about them. But but when we were conceiving of the product, obviously we were informed by those experiences. You know, I've been, as an auditor, I've been responsible for the, the cancellation of multi-billion dollar programs of work and all that money kind of getting flushed away. That's a kind of harm at a societal level, right? We can't yeah. be wasting billions of dollars uh, like that um, as a government for our society. 
um, but there's harm to individuals as well. So when we started looking at, you know, what can go wrong and, and really understanding a business case for why we should even build a product for this, we looked at some other public domain examples of things that had gone wrong. And the first one that really resonated with me and made me fully commit to abandoning my life as a, you know, a, a well-remunerated consultant and becoming founder <laughs> um, was the story of Vivian Salon. So um, Vivian is an Australian citizen, um, a very vulnerable woman found with a head injury in a park um, in Lismore and um, picked up, you know, by the police and then handed to the Department of Immigration who summarily deported her to the Philippines because they couldn't find her record in their record-keeping system. Um, and an wow. inquiry found that, of course, the record was there the whole time. The system was just not discoverable. So this very vulnerable citizen was sent to um, Manila and left in a home for the dying and destitute um, for many years until she was tracked down by a good Samaritan uh, and repatriated to Australia and compensated. Um, but she had left her little kid at childcare that day, never picked him up, and he was put into the foster system where he remained even after she returned as far as we were aware. So... That's catastrophic harm wow. to to one one person that has a ripple effect to the rest of their family and their wider community because we just couldn't find some information. And it's not a one-off. Um, mm. You know, the same thing happened with Cornelia Rao, locked in immigration detention because her records couldn't be related across systems. And in the UK, uh, an inquiry found that if the national policing database was more discoverable, was actually discoverable at all, mm. really, then the Manchester bombing would have been prevented. Oof, wow. Not could have been, but definitely would have been. There were 400 yeah. pieces of missed information in that system right. that would have prevented that attack. So, And that's just discoverability, right? When we can't find things, these are the catastrophic outcomes that can happen. And when whether we're a government or a corporate, um, we're just the custodians of information that's about people and they're really the mm -hmm. owner of that information but we're trusted with the custody of it and if we make mistakes like that that can really cause a lot of harm we have harm too when we destroy things that should be kept mm -hmm. like we saw with the windrush generation in the uk where um the government destroyed all the arrival cards of caribbean immigrants from the windrush era which meant that when the hostile environment policy was introduced um, and those people had to furnish proof of their right to remain in the UK, they couldn't because the only record from those ships of them arriving had been destroyed. And technically those records had reached their minimum retention. They didn't need to be kept anymore, but they should have been because a rule about how long we keep things needs to be considered in context of all the other legislation, you know. So, so again, dozens of people were unlawfully deported because of that. Oh. So and that's just destroying information too soon. And then, of course, with breaches, we see what happens when we keep information too long, when we don't minimise. And suddenly when there's a spill, all these people are affected that shouldn't have been in the spill. You know, mm -hmm. their information should have been disposed of securely and compliantly when it no longer had a business use. So all of these things, you know, how we manage information can cause such significant harm that we actually responded to the Australian government, you know, consultation paper mm -hmm. on responsible AI um, last week, I think it closed, 
to say that um, use of AI for information management should be considered high risk because yes. when we use automated decision making for whether we protect or preserve or destroy something, um, that can have um, irreversible and permanent effects on citizens. Yeah, and if we think about this as software engineers, right, I've built systems of all kinds before, most of our audience have, you know, you we talk about impact and we talk about it in quite a high level sense. I don't think any of us really dig into the impact. And I certainly don't think that we think about those environments we're putting in and those real long lasting effects of our decisions. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we would change the way that we build software or, or we design it if we were thinking in quite that coordinated way. And particularly, you know, we, we talk a lot about legislation and I'm glad you brought that up about yeah, retention periods. Now, retention periods are interesting in that they describe the minimum amount that you can keep it for, but they don't describe the maximum. Um, and like you said, they're, they're isolated to a specific set of requirements. They're not a coordinated piece. And when you start trying to map out, I've, I've tried recently, don't do it, to map out all of the application security requirements, for example, across multiple um, schemas, it, it's a nightmare of a job. It's no wonder that we, we have this fragility in our data handling. Um, and perhaps for our audience at home, that's you know something you can have a think about is think about these use cases, these scenarios that Rachel shared with us. And what are the impacts that your data could have if it was not discoverable or if it was deleted prematurely or mishandled? So these sound like amazing technical challenges, Rachel. Um, and you talked a little bit uh, earlier, you said that your AI should be explainable, that it should have mm. a transparency to it. I'm going to get the wrong words, but can you... Can you talk us through that? What does that really mean if your AI is is explainable in some way? Yeah, so um, maybe the best way to understand this is again with some examples. So Australians are familiar with RoboDebt at this point, hopefully, and that wasn't AI, right, but it was an algorithm. It was an algorithm that said this person owes money and sent letters to those people and said you have a big debt. Um, and the problem with that was twofold. The first problem was that the algorithm was wrong in a lot of cases, um, which is not good. Um, but the second problem was that it wasn't really contestable. So when people tried to push back, again, vulnerable people, the most vulnerable people in the community are the ones who are receiving benefits, right? The most mm. disenfranchised people with the fewest resources. So when they tried to push back and said, I don't think this is right, they were met with this, this this um, this wall of resistance that said the algorithm is right. You know, mm. The algorithm says so. The computer says, yes, you owe money. And there was no way to contest that and argue with it. And that's what really caused the hardship and the harm. Um, and again, that wasn't a one-off. And this has been happening for a long time. This goes back to the 90s with the Horizon scandal in the UK with the Postmasters where Fujitsu, I think it was, had a um, the horizon system set up with an algorithm that was um, incorrectly determining that postmasters were stealing from their own post offices. Oh. And, um, and um, a lot of people were fired. Uh, some people, I believe, were actually imprisoned. Um, people lost their livelihoods. They, their marriages broke down because, again, this algorithm was wrong. But more importantly, it wasn't contestable. So when they went back and said, can you explain this algorithm? Mm -hmm. The answer was, I mean, no, not really. Like, it's an algorithm. What do you, what do you want me to say? Um, so, so since then, 
um, we've had this voluntary code of ethical AI, ethical artificial intelligence. And Australia was actually one of the first jurisdictions in the world to have a formal kind of code of conduct for ethical AI. Mm. And the principles of ethical AI are the same the world over. It's that when we use algorithms or any automated decision-making, you need to be able to explain that decision so that people can contest it. That's all. It's really that simple. So they use words like transparency, explainability, explicability, you know, whatever that is. But the whole concept essentially is that if we're going to rely on algorithms and AI, which based on our early discussion of scope and scale, clearly we have to, mm. um, those outputs, the decisions that come from that, you need to be able to contest them if you think they're wrong. Awesome. Um, so if I'm understanding this correctly, it's the idea that you've not just got the output, but also this kind of dialogue, if you will, that says we got to this via this process. Um, and yes. those two things happen in combination. I, we're used to just looking at the outputs. You know, you've been playing with ChatGPT, you see the output of it, but yeah. you're not seeing the inner working, that, like like maths papers when you did exams when you were young and showing your working was important. Exactly. We're going to be really pushing to show the working. That's right. And it's the same with any kind of science, right? So this is why we have peer review. You can't just come out with an output. You need to show your data. You need to show how the decision was arrived at um, so that it can be scrutinised. And if it's mm -hmm. wrong, it can be caught. Otherwise, we end up with vaccines cause autism, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't do enough due diligence on how someone arrived at a conclusion. And that in itself can cause a lot of harm for individuals and for wider society. So um, this was all just voluntary codes. And luckily, because I'm an auditor, when I designed the software, <laughs> of course, I went looking for any kind of international standard benchmark best practice to apply, anything relating to what we were doing. And of course, Australia had these ethical AI principles. So I baked them in from the beginning. I said, OK, if we're going to do this AI and it's going to have the ability to read everything in the environment and it's going to classify it automatically, it must be transparent. We have mm -hmm. to be able to show not just the decision support of saying, hey, this record is ready for disposal or this one is risky or this one is valuable. We need to be able to show clearly in the user interface in simple language why it's reached that conclusion so that you can decide whether it's right or it's wrong. Um, so we built that in from the beginning. Um, but we were really the only ones doing that with AI at the time because it's much easier to just use something like machine learning yeah. where you just train the AI on a data set yeah. and say, okay, well, here's a rule. We need to keep final approved versions of asbestos remediation policy for 15 years, whatever. Yeah. Um, so what you're saying when you use um, supervised machine learning, for example, is you're saying, okay, give me a thousand good examples of final approved versions of asbestos remediation policy. That's hard to do, right? But let's say you could curate that many, you know, gold mm. examples of that. Then the AI reads them all and it makes patterns and vectors and, and it, it goes, okay, I've learned this. I now know what this is, which means when I find it later, I'll be able to know based on my algorithm that this is a final approved version mm -hmm. of the asbestos remediation policy, which is a great theory except for two problems. Number one is the scale. So the rules for how we manage information are plentiful um, and often conflicting. And those rules come from all different kinds of legislation. So your average organisation will have hundreds or even thousands of separate rules. Mm. So that's a lot of work, right, to set it up. It's very high effort to do this well, to actually get good quality source data to train it on. 
But the bigger problem is that even if you could do that and you were really confident that your source data was perfect and that you'd supervised the ML really effectively, when you start getting outcomes, they're algorithmic. They're from a closed box or what we used yeah. to call a black box system, which means that you just have to trust it. And when someone comes and says, hey, you destroyed my file, which had the information that I need to be eligible for compensation or eligible for reparations, as in the case of Maralinga or stolen generations in Australia or child abuse, um, it's not good enough to just say, yeah, but the algorithm said we mm. could destroy it. Because you can't break open that closed box. You can't see why. And that's not good enough anymore under law. So since ChatGPT came and frightened everybody, um, in the world, at the same time as we have, you know, a war happening in Europe, um, everyone started to take this ethical AI much more seriously, and now it's becoming law. So the EU have um, put down the Ethical AI Act, the short, which should be um, should be coming into effect pretty soon, and every other advanced economy is following, including Australia now. So soon it will become actually against the law to make these algorithmic closed box decisions that can impact wow. people. So that puts us in a good position because we sort of forecast this would happen a long time ago when it was still voluntary. But what it does mean is that any other AI that you're using in any automated decision making, which could be generative, it could be large language models, it could be supervised machine learning, it could be neural networks, is about to be obsolesced mm. by the law. So we're going to have to really, you know, come to terms with and reconcile what we do with the AI that we've already adopted to see yeah. if it's going to be lawful to use going forward. I think this is a very interesting time. It's, it's interesting for security nerds like me. You know, uh, we struggle with these closed black box systems because a threat assessment is really impossible when you can't see what a thing is doing on the inside. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're building a system now, anyone in the audience, and you have an AI component, um, and perhaps you sell globally, this is going to be a really interesting time full of some very big technical challenges. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting watching going on of the EU situation and how that rolls out globally. Uh, and hopefully it will be seen as a positive thing long term um, and that, you know, we can embrace the benefits that it gives us and that harm reduction uh, that you've spoken so eloquently about today, Rachel. Um, look, I'm I'm genuinely excited to hear about what your technology is doing. Um, I wouldn't even know where to begin at that scale. Um, and so what's the best way for us to follow along the Castle Point adventure and, and what you're doing, Rachel? Yeah, well, we're, um, we're on LinkedIn. Castle Point Systems is the company. You can find us on there. And um, the website's castlepoint.systems. Heaps of info on there about what we're doing. And I always welcome people connecting with me directly. On LinkedIn, uh, Rachel Greaves, you'll have the spelling in the uh, in the podcast there. Um, I love to just stay part of the community, you know, and keep an eye on what's going on. So please connect with me directly and uh, and follow the company page and um, you'll hear all about what we're doing. Awesome. That sounds great. And for those who are new to this ethical AI space, it feels like we all have a bit of reading and a bit of homework to do. So um, let's all share those links. Remember to like and subscribe and all of those kind of things for the podcast um, and share what you learned. Did you find something out today as a result of today's episode? Are you rethinking the way that you do some form of AI? Because I'd really love for us to make that more visible, more transparent. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Rachel. I, I've learned a whole bunch. Um, I now have more questions. So that, that's a perfect place to leave a podcast episode. Um, but good luck with all of your adventures. We wish you all the best. 
Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, that's been another fantastic episode, team. I hope you've enjoyed it. And as always, if you have anyone else you would like to see us interview on the show, or if you're personally involved in building some amazing technology or solving a big technical problem we're not even aware of, then get in touch. We'd love to talk.